You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. So I'm uh, Marcus Reuber. I'm a neurologist from Sheffield and I'm doing this podcast for the JNNP. Uh, we're at the uh, British Neuropsychiatric Association meeting in London in February 2013 and John Jeffries has um, kindly given us an excellent talk here about epilepsy uh, models in, in animals, epilepsy networks. So John, maybe you could just briefly tell us uh, again what you told the audience earlier. The bottom line I was trying to get across was that epilepsy, well epilepsy is clearly defined by its seizures and seizures are conventionally thought of as being hypersynchronous events, lots of neurons doing firing together and doing lots of abnormal activity together. And I started off by saying something about the structure of the networks that allow that to happen in normal people without epilepsy, essentially divergent connections, strong connections and large populations of neurons. But in chronic epilepsy, the key thing is that the underlying cellular properties of the neurons are changed in a way that makes seizures occur spontaneously. And I went through a number of the sorts of changes that happen. They could be in voltage-gated iron channels, sodium channels, some potassium channels, and a variety of others that are too detailed to go into. There could be changes in synaptic properties, so that there are changes in receptors at synapses. There could be changes in the way in which... Uh, synaptic relays are managed so that you may lose inhibition in some cases. So the, one of the examples I used for synaptic um, changes was from Valerie Crepel in France showing increased NMDA receptor expression in excitatory synapses which would be a pro-epileptic event for instance. And the third major area I discussed were changes in connectivity which is a very robust finding in humans and in pretty well every rodent model I know of temporal lobe epilepsy you find a big increase in connectivity in parts of the brain where you can measure it easily. And the key thing is this happens in, all these things can happen in individual foci. So you have a multimodal pathology which may be one of the reasons why epilepsies, in particular temporal lobe epilepsy, can be rather hard to treat. You don't have a single target you're aiming at. The other implication of this complex of cellular changes is that you've comes from the fact you only have seizures rather infrequently. In humans, maybe one seizure and then months or sometimes even years later and then another seizure. Now, road models tend to be a little bit more often. But most of the time, an organism with epilepsy is not seizing. But they still have these cellular changes, the changes in ligand-gated ion channels, voltage-gated ion channels, connectivity. And that is likely to have an impact on the behaviour between seizures and could be an explanation for many of the comorbidities, which I would have thought ought to be of interest to psychiatrists and neurologists. Uh, precisely what they are will depend where they are and what the nature of them is, and that there are a huge number of degrees of freedom. So it's more of a general principle than saying you can pin it down reliably. I was particularly interested in what you um, said about um, the adaptive mechanisms of the brain, how they in some ways seem to be designed to control or reduce the effect of seizures or seizure spread, but how they can then affect functioning. And you, you gave a number of, of different um, levels at which these sorts of adaptive uh, changes happen. Yes, this is one of the many confusing things. So this is specifically involves, uh, the example I used involves sodium channels. And in an epileptic focus, there's quite a lot of evidence in both human and animal data. You may get more persistent sodium current, which is a pro-epileptic event. But in our animal models, at least, we also find evidence of decreased numbers of sodium channels uh, at times when the animal has gone into remission. And 
that may well be why the animal goes into remission. That you know, could well be something one might want to explore as a therapeutic approach, except that the animals that have gone into remission actually don't learn very well. They have a cognitive impairment, and that loss of excitability in a key set of neurons in the hippocampus it has functional consequences which are not very attractive. We're trying to find out how widespread these changes are, which is something one ought to be rather careful about, I think. And one of the other questions is whether they occur, whether they occur interictally. I guess they probably will, but that's a much harder thing to investigate if you're looking at cognitive effects, because you've got in interictal discharges alongside your cellular pathophysiology. It's very hard to attribute a cognitive impairment to one or the other exclusively, so it's a much more complex system to work with. And I think one of the questions from the audience afterwards was about the, essentially about the, the latent period and, and the changes also in, in the early changes uh, that, that after an insult that may contribute to epileptogenicity and whether um, one could intervene at that point. This is the million dollar question. Disease modification is really uh, big news at the moment in, in my branch of epilepsy research. So we would love to be able to prevent the onset of epileptogenesis. We'd like to prevent the transition from the initial insult through to the first seizure. Clinically, it'd be quite hard because you don't really, probably don't know what the initial insult is and when it happens. So when do you treat? Uh, in a severe head injury, there you can do something, and there are, there's actually some interesting work going on which I didn't talk about. It's not mine, but there are some candidates drugs which might be worth exploring so for instance gabapentin which is look, looks as though it might be rather good at preventing the onset of epilepsy probably rather better than it is at stopping seizures in established epilepsy um, there's some other interests in uh, cannabinoid antagonists which also seem good candidates so there's work going on uh, but the question that was posed by a member of the audience was should we treat first seizure aggressively and i think there the jury's out you need more than one seizure to diagnose epilepsy. You probably, on first seizure, you ought to be worried whether the person has a cardiac problem or you know, whatever else, what other potential confusing issues that might be going on. But having a seizure is, has a big impact on the brain. And what that impact is, is very hard to predict. Uh, another audience member asked about electroconvulsive therapy. If you do that in experimental models, it looks like it probably inhibits the probability of a seizure occurring if you try and provoke a seizure subsequently. And I'm not sure anybody really understands how that works. So the nature of the seizure is something that one has to care about to understand what's going on. I think there's going to be a lot more activity on these longer term dynamics, which certainly in the rodent models where it's expensive but possible to do it uh, more importantly in the humans where I think the clinical population is much harder to get reliable data because you don't do long-term monitoring it's prohibitively expensive short answer is I think it's a very active area we'd love to know about it but the one place where people are making progress is intervening between an identified initial epileptogenic insult and the first seizure from the first seizure to subsequent seizures I think is probably going to have to wait a year or two until people really get engaged in that as a research question. But I may be wrong, maybe the people are doing it already. So there's a lot more work to do. So, oh yes. Thank you very much.